If you would bow with me, we're going to pray together and then we're going to open Isaiah 40 and look at that passage together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Uh, as this passage says, uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. We thank you that your word is eternal, that it is life giving, uh, that you create and you recreate through your word. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity just to open it together this morning. Uh, we pray as we do each week. Uh, that we cannot do this without you. So we ask that your spirit would move in this place, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you would take the eternal truths of your word and apply them to us. We pray that we would leave here having seen you more fully. We pray that uh, this time would help to frame and shape our worship over Christmas as we uh, just marvel at who you are and what you've done for us. Uh, We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, If you've been with us uh, through our series here in Advent, uh, what we've been doing each week is just talking about the different themes that we see uh, kind of stretching out over the whole of Scripture. And so what we've been doing is just looking at some different themes that we see that run all the way through the threads uh, of the story uh, that God has started from the very beginning and see how they are finding their ends in Jesus. And so what we've done the last few weeks is we talked about our deep longing for a home or a place and, and how we have that in Christ. And then we talked about uh, the deep yearning uh, of our souls to want to be able to rest. Uh, Luke took us through last week of, of the yearning uh, for a true spouse. And then this week, we're going to talk about the idea of the king, the true king that we see uh, repeated in Scripture. We see uh, from the very beginnings all the way through the Bible, really, uh, the people longing for a good king and calling out to God and the way that works and and the promises that he begins to make. But I was thinking about as this series, some of those, the rest one in particular, I think resonates like, yes, I want rest, the idea of home or spouse. But then we get to king and there's a problem that almost immediately comes up. That uh, we don't really have a king these days. And for the most part, I think, I think I'm right in saying this, in America anyway, we don't really want one, right? The idea of a king is not something that we're like, yes, we really need a king. Uh, but I want us to think about why this is such an important theme in the Bible. And so to, to even begin to do that, we have to just think a little bit about what we even mean when we talk about the true king or wanting a king or what they were longing for in the Bible to even get why that's important. And so I, I would say uh, when we talk about a king, uh, even using that term, that might sound antiquated or something that doesn't really connect with us. But I think it would be a true statement to say that uh, we long for good leaders. We long for people uh, that are that are um, gracious and kind and wise, that would be a good leader, even in our own country. Uh, if you look back the last, say, five years ago, uh, five years ago, an election or even last year, an election, uh, whatever side that looks like or how you see all that, you would we could clearly say in the last two elections that half of our population has been upset at the outcome. A pretty 50-50 split, different things that people value and hold to. But we wrestle with that. And what, happen, what has happened in the last couple of elections is no matter who's elected, every, half the country groans that, oh, no, we're in trouble. Right. And so we, we see people across the board, wherever you fall, that's not a, a partisan statement, but wherever you fall in that, we would say that we see an importance of who is the president in our country. 
We say that's that's an important thing. That person has a lot of power and they're going to have the opportunity to bring about some change and lead in different ways. And so whatever uh, wherever you fall on that, we would still say that's an important thing that we would long for a good leader in different ways, because a leader will have, uh, for example, in our country, a president will have great effects on on fairness and, and governance and justice and safety and the way we interact with other countries and where that leads us and all that goes with that. And so even though the idea of a king might be antiquated to us, something that we don't really long for, we certainly see the importance of good leadership. And so I want you just to think, even in our country, what it would be like to have a truly great leader, someone who was so wise and so fair and so full of wisdom, someone who uh, would uh, show the fruit of the spirit that we see spelled out in scripture for us, someone that's patient and kind and gracious and wise and slow to speak. And what that would be like, what that would be like to have a leader that looks like that or or someone that is so much smarter uh, than all of us that you hear them speak and you immediately know this this guy or this woman or this person is way smarter than I am. What that would be like just to hear that and immediately know that, but not only smarter than us, but very humble with the way they carry themselves. Smarter, but yet at the same time, gracious and humble and kind. And I think about that and I immediately go, man, that'd be great. That'd be wonderful. In fact, there's an image that comes to my mind when I even begin to think about that. It's being a little kid, probably five or six years old. And whenever anything was going wrong or anything was bothering me or anything was worrying, my dad would come along and take me by the hand. And immediately, suddenly everything was okay. Maybe you have a memory like that. When you're a little kid and your dad comes and he takes you by the hand and he's much bigger than you are. And in your your little world as a child, he knows everything. Right. He's way smarter. And he takes you by the hand. It's suddenly like, oh, everything's okay, Right. I have memories like that with my dad. He is a very wise and gracious and kind man. And especially when you're a child, you think, man, he knows everything. And how wonderful that feeling and that longing is to have someone who really knows and cares about you and is leading you in a good way. And I think if we stop and think about it, that resonates with us at a very deep heart level. Even if it's not in the image of maybe a king that we would think about it, but that idea of someone who is a good leader that cares for us and is leading us in that way. And so I want us to think about that idea this morning. I think it does connect with us on a very deep level. We see this all the way through Scripture. And I want us to consider why that's the case. I don't think it's just a storybook thing. It's not a fairy tale. It's not because we've seen lots of movies that were, were the good king or longing for the good leader or whatever it would be. But I think it's actually a heart thing, a deep connection to our core that we seek and yearn and long for that. And so here's the question I want us to consider of why that longing for a king or a good leader or however you want to say that is so profound. Why that is such a deep yearning of our heart. And then the second thing I want us to consider is how in Jesus we have that king. And then lastly, how we should respond. 
So let's just start with the the idea of the longing for a king and why that is so profound. Uh, There's a real simple reason before we're going to look at the Bible. We're going to think about big idea themes through scripture as to why. But before we even get to that, we could just simply say, why is the longing so profound? And the answer could simply be because the world is messed up. Right. I mean, we look around in everything around us right now and we see violence and threats of wars and we see injustice. We see racism. We see struggles all around us. And it's very easy without even going to the Bible, without even talking about uh, theological issues or getting into any of those things that we immediately go. Yeah, we desperately need good leadership. The world is a mess and we see it all around us. But if we go deeper back into the biblical story of the way things started and the way God created us to be, we get a fuller understanding as to why. And so every week, what we've been doing in this series is we've been going back to Genesis 1 and 2. To understand these themes that run all the way through the Bible, we have to go back to the very beginning. And what we see at the very beginning is that God has created us in His image to live in close relationship with Him. To live under His care, kind of under His wing, to be right there with Him, trusting and walking with Him. The creator God of all things, who made all things, who holds all things together by the word of his power. We exist because he says so, has created us to live in deference to him, putting him at the center. But what we see immediately in the story in Genesis 3 is God creates us that way, but we immediately decide we can do this on our own. That we would rather rely on our own wisdom than the creator God that created all things. And so the very first sin, what you see with Adam and Eve in the garden is we can do this on our own. Yes, we understand that you're our creator. Yes, we understand that we were made for you, but we think we can define this ourselves. And so we see that at the very beginning of the story and what happens all the way throughout Scripture to our day today is we've rejected taking God's wisdom and letting him be the leader, letting him be the one that is over all things and trusting him in that. And we think we can do it ourselves. And the results have been detrimental. We've seen the same issues and same problems over and over and over again. We're going to look at a passage here in Isaiah chapter 40. And you see all of the same heart issues coming to fruition in the people in Israel that we see today. They were going after different gods and different idols and they were worshiping different things. There's big, nasty nations around them rising up that would that would come and put them under their power. And so in Isaiah's day, it was the Babylonians. They were an awful, awful people that were vicious and cruel. The way in which they uh, conquered places and killed people was hard for us to fathom. Uh, The same is true in Jesus's day with the Roman Empire. They were a huge uh, hand of oppression on the people there. And they were longing for good leadership, just like they were in Isaiah's day, just like we are in our day today. And so we see this problem recurring throughout God's story, throughout history over and over. People longing for good leadership and stumbling along and struggling And the problem that we see is no matter where we pick up in the story as different leaders and even people that God calls and he raises up. And what happens is they're all flawed. Every single one of them, every king that comes, every leader that God brings up. I mean, we go all the way back, even 
even with Moses and and Joshua and after him and judges. And we see all these issues and all these problems and they never do everything that God says and they continue to stumble and fall and struggle. And the problem that we see over and over again is that no person was ever meant to fully be the leader, the king. And it's a result of sin that we've decided that we can do it on our own that causes all these issues, but yet we seek to continue to do it. And so the people cry out for a good king and they cry out to God for these different things. And God keeps making promises, says, I'm going to fix these issues. I'm going to fix these promises. And he begins to talk about a king that will come. Uh, He gives this promise to David. David becomes a very good king. It's good for the people. There's a time that Israel has some real flourishing. But then God makes a promise to David that he says, you will have a king after you that will rule forever. And he begins to make this promise in parts. And the people kind of hear the promise and they understand. And they're longing and looking to this savior, this Messiah that will come, that will be the king. And then in Isaiah chapter 40 that we're going to look at together, we see Isaiah begin to kind of expand this idea of who's coming. And so if you would look at Isaiah chapter 40 with me and we're going to pick up in verse three. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you know the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are pretty bleak. But there's a lot of judgment and a lot of problems and a lot of struggles. And then you get to chapter 40 and there's this promise. And it says God's coming. The Lord is coming. And he's coming in this way, this king that is coming, that this the prepare the way, uh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah invokes language that would have been understandable and normal for his audience. Because what they knew in that time is when the king came to visit his kingdom and he'd go out to visit the people, they literally had to cut roads for him to go out to the desolate places. And so we actually have inscriptions from the Babylonian Empire around this time that when the king went out to visit these different places, they would literally cut new roads. They would cut ways that he could go out to these desolate places to visit his subjects or or his kingdom. And so what Isaiah is using is that kind of language here. Prepare the way in the desert that the king can go out and visit his people. But as you read this and you read what Isaiah is saying, suddenly you're starting to see uh, something far fuller than just a king going out to visit his subjects. The language here is far greater than that. And so I want you to even think about what happens just in the practical of what he was talking about that the people understood. When the king would go out to these places and he'd go out to the desolate places and they cut a new road, it would make those places safer. It would make them better because now it's easier to get to them. They're not so desolate anymore. So there was a healing influence when the king came to those places. And so the people understood that. But then look at the way he ups the language in verse four. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. He starts to talk about how all the mountains will be leveled and all the valleys will be brought up. And suddenly everything will be easy to get to. And I want you to think about the imagery he's using. 
He's not literally talking about all the mountains being gone and all the valleys being filled in. But he's talking about the imagery of how difficult those places were. We have the same imagery in the book of Revelation. It talks about how when Jesus returns in the end, there'll be no more sea. Right. And and you read that and you go, what? No more sea. But you have to understand what the sea represented at that time. Right. The sea at that time before electricity, before the common things that we have, boats and the ways that we go out into the ocean is a really, really scary place. Right. Imagine how scary it is if you're out in the middle of the sea in a rowboat and suddenly a huge storm comes up. And so the imagery that it's using in Revelation is similar to what Isaiah is using here. Same thing to get to the desolate places in the valleys and in the mountains is a difficult place to traverse. And so when he says they're going to be brought low, the mountains are going to be brought low and the valleys are going to be filled. He's talking about the scary, dark and terrifying places. And he says, when this king comes, when he comes, all those things are going to be no more. There's going to be no more scary places like there were before. And so Isaiah is using a language to talk about the uninhabitable wilderness, like the desert, like the mountains, like those tough places. But the way he's talking about it is the things that we see every day when we turn on the news. Disease and war and poverty and brokenness. And when this king comes, those things will be no more. And so Isaiah is beginning to expand this idea of the king that will come. And what he's saying is it's going to be the true king that comes. The people in his day, in the shadow of Babylon, the horrible oppression that they had seen, they were experiencing. And here he is saying, but God has not forgotten you. And he's bringing a king that's going to set all things right. And so it was the same in Jesus's day. They were longing. It's the same in our day. We long for a king like that because we're still struggling with all these same issues. We long for a true king to come to set things right. One that truly is perfect in every way. I mean, just think about what we have going in our world today. When we hear this imagery that Isaiah talks about, the desert places, the scary and hard things, and you turn on the news and you see shootings. See a guy going up in a hotel room in Las Vegas and mowing people down. You go, oh, we need somebody to fix that. Or or you turn on the news and you see refugees running from people who are cutting heads off of anyone that doesn't believe what they believe. You go, oh, how we long that someone would come and stop these things. Or you turn on the news and you see the shootings, you see racism, you see war, you see our unborn being discarded, you see all these horrible things that we see over and over again. And we long for a good king to stop them all. To fix them. And what Isaiah says here is that king is coming. But if you look closely at what he says, there's this incredible change that starts to happen in the Bible right around this time. God makes this promise to David. You're going to have a king who comes after you, who's going to sit on his throne forever. And so the people were longing and waiting. When's he going to come? But then if God gives this prophecy to Isaiah, look at what he says in verse nine. Go up. 
Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and he will gently lead those that are with the young. And what it says is that God himself is coming. It's not just an earthly king, but God himself is going to come down and enter into the story. And there's this incredible thing when you read it and you start to look at the way it talks about God coming in verse 10 and then verse 11. He's going to come with might and his arm rules for him. But then in verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms. And there's a strange juxtaposition that takes place there. God's coming to set all things right. But when he first comes, he's going to come like a good shepherd. He's going to come like a father who takes his son by the hand and he sweeps him up. And says it's okay. And Isaiah makes that promise of the good king that is coming. And so what we celebrate at Christmas is that he's come. The good shepherd has come. And this whole passage written 700 years before Jesus points to Jesus coming. Not only does it point to him coming, it points into the exact way in which he would come. You have there in verse three. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We turn over to John chapter one and there's John the Baptist, the voice crying in the wilderness saying the kingdom is here. The king has come. And he's crying out that here he is, he's 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 landed. He's come the one that we've long been waiting for. But the struggle that they had then and the struggle that the the culture had is they were expecting the conquering king. They were expecting a king to come who did things like all the other kings did. But yet when this king comes, when God enters, he doesn't come like the other kings. He doesn't come with a mighty hand wiping people out. He comes born in a manger as a baby. He comes born into poverty in the middle of nowhere to two teenage parents. Surrounded by angel, animals and straw and the mess that goes with that. And he's humbly born and he comes in and he begins to show us what the good king looks like. And he grows up wisdom and stature. And as he grows in it, he becomes the perfect king in every way. He shows us what it looks like to love God and to love people and to do it perfectly. But no one expected the king to look like this. But then he comes and he begins to fulfill all these things that the Old Testament talks about. The good king that comes and humbly serves and loves and comes to bring back his sheep. To scoop us up in his arms. And so everywhere he goes, he seeks to save the lost. And he proclaims the kingdom and he says, come to me, all you are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Every theme that we've talked about, the true home, the perfect spouse, where you can rest. The king is now here and he's inviting us into that. And that's exactly what he does. 
And as the people wanted to make him the king that's going to rule with his fist, he comes and says, I'm not going to do it that way. I've come to lay down my life for my sheep. He's not going to come just in that way. That's thinking far too small. He's going to come and he's going to live the perfect life, loving God and loving people. And then he's willfully going to choose to go to the cross to lay down his life on your behalf and mine. And in doing so, he's going to destroy the very foundations. He's going to do away with the mountains and he's going to bring up the valleys as he destroys sin and death when he goes to the cross. He's not interested in just overthrowing a government in one little part of the world at a certain time. He says, I'm coming to do away with all of it. He's coming to fulfill the promise that Isaiah sees. The one is coming He's going to do away with all the dark, scary, desolate places. And that's exactly what Jesus does is he goes to the cross and he takes your sin and mine on himself and he pays for our sins. All the ways in which we've thumbed our nose at God and said, we've got this ourselves. We will operate on our own wisdom. Jesus says, I will take all of that. We'll take all of it on me and I will pay for it. And then I will give you the benefits of my life and I will bring you back into the relationship you were created for. And so we see Jesus do all of it. And he destroys the scary and desolate places by what he does on the cross. He defeats sin and death. But as we think about the good king and the fullness of this story, as we see it unfold in Scripture and how Jesus is the good king, we get to the end. And the hard part is here we are still living in a broken, sinful, fallen world. And so what do we look at or how do we respond to what Jesus has done? And there's a couple things I want you to consider. I said this the very first week we started in this. As we come into Advent The arrival of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, what we celebrate at Christmas, it should invoke in us a yearning and a desire for Jesus' second coming. The fullness of what he's already purchased and what he's already completed when he returns and he sets all things right. See, his first coming, he proved who he was by his life, death and resurrection and then ascension. In his second coming, he will come as the conquering king to set all things right. We live in a unique time between his first and his second coming. We've seen the first coming. We've seen the fullness of who Jesus is and what he's done by his death and resurrection. And so now we live in the already but not yet. Jesus has already won. He is the king and he is reigning and he is ruling right now. Be no mistake, there's nothing outside of his control or his powerful hand. He is ruling and reigning right now, but he allows all the rest to go on for a time. And so we live in the in-between. And so what it means for us is that we live with a yearning and a longing for his second coming, for his setting all things right. But it also means that we are now united in him by what he's done for us. And so we get to live in this time. And we get opportunities to show what the rule and reign of Jesus looks like in our life in this time right now. And so the response is it should give in us a great expectancy for what is to come. But it should also give a response of a great expectancy of what God is going to do right now in us as he's ruling and reigning on his throne now. We have a good king who has done all that we cannot do for us. 
and he's going to return to set it all right. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of your gospel. We thank you for the prophecy of Isaiah writing 700 years ago, showing us exactly what you are going to come and do. We thank you that we've seen that. We pray that as we live in this time in between, that you would help to stir in our hearts a great excitement for your returning, but also that we would be excited about uh, just showing what you're like, proclaiming your rule and reign right now, that we would see those opportunities to do that as we wait and long for your second coming. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.